Chapter 7 of Tales of the Longbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Tales of the Longbow by G. K. Chesterton. The Unprecedented Architecture of Commander Blair. The Earl of Eden had become Prime Minister for the third time, and his face and figure were therefore familiar in the political cartoons and even in the public streets. His yellow hair and lean and springy figure gave a facetious air of youth, but his face, on a closer study, looked lined and wrinkled and gave almost a shock of decrepitude. He was, in truth, a man of great experience and dexterity in his own profession. He had just succeeded in routing the Socialist Party and overthrowing the Socialist government largely by the use of certain rhymed mottoes and maxims which he had himself invented with considerable amusement. His great slogan of Don't Nationalize but Rationalize was generally believed to have led him to victory but at the moment when this story begins he had other things to think of he had just received an urgent request for consultation from three of his most prominent supporters lord norman towers sir horace hunter o b e the great advocate of scientific politics and mr r lowe the philanthropist they were confronted with a problem and their problem concerned the sudden madness of an american millionaire the prime minister was not unacquainted with american millionaires even those whose conduct suggested that they were hardly representative of a normal or national type there was the great grig the millionaire inventor who had pressed upon the war office the scheme for finishing the war at a blow it consisted of electrocuting the kaiser by wireless telegraphy there was Mr. Knapper of Nebraska, whose negotiations for removing Shakespeare's cliff to America as a symbol of Anglo-Saxon unity were unaccountably frustrated by the firm refusal of the American Republic to send us Plymouth Rock in exchange. And there was that charming and cultured Bostonian, Colonel Hoopo, whom all England welcomed in his crusade for purity and the League of the Lily, until england discovered with considerable surprise that the american ambassador and all respectable americans flatly refused to meet the colonel whose record at home was that of a very narrow escape from sing sing but the problem of enoch oates who had made his money in pork was something profoundly different as lord eden's three supporters eagerly explained to him seated around a garden table at his beautiful country seat in somerset mr oates had done something that the maddest millionaire had never thought of doing before up to a certain point he had proceeded in a manner normal to such a foreigner he had purchased amid general approval an estate covering about a quarter of a county and it was expected that he would make it a field for some of those american experiments in temperance or eugenics for which the english agricultural populace offer a sort of virgin soil instead of that 
he suddenly went mad and made a present of his land to his tenants so that by an unprecedented anomaly the farms became the property of the farmers that an american millionaire should take away english things from england english rents english relics english pictures english cathedrals or cliffs of dover was a natural operation to which everybody was by this time accustomed but that an american millionaire should give english land to english people was an unwarrantable interference and tantamount to an alien enemy stirring up revolution enoch oates had therefore been summoned to the council and sat scowling at the table as if he were on the dock results most deplorable already said sir horace hunter in his rather loud voice give you an example my lord people of the name of dale in somerset took in a lunatic as a lodger may have been a homicidal maniac for all i know some do say that he had a great cannon or culverin sticking out of his bedroom window but with no responsible management of the estate no landlord no lawyer no educated person anywhere there was nothing to prevent their letting the bedroom to a bengal tiger anyhow the man was mad rushed raving on to the platform of the astronomical congress talking about lovely women and the cow that jumped over the moon that damned agitator pierce who used to be in the flying corps was in the hall and made a riot and carried the crazy fellow off in an airplane that's the sort of thing you'll have happening all over the place if these ignorant fellows are allowed to do just as they like it is quite true said lord norman towers i could give many other examples they say that owen hood another of these eccentrics has actually bought one of these little farms and stuck it all round with absurd battlements and a moat and drawbridge with the motto the englishman's house is his castle i think said the prime minister quietly that however english the englishman may be he will find his castle is a castle in spain not to say a castle in the air mr oates he said addressing very courteously the big brooding american at the other end of the table please do not imagine that i cannot sympathize with such romances although they are only in the air but i think in all sincerity that you will find they are unsuited to the english clime et ego in arcadia you know we have all had such dreams of all men piping in arcady but after all you have already paid the piper and if you are wise i think you can still call the tune gives me great satisfaction to say it's too late growled oakes i want them to learn to play and pay for themselves but you want them to learn said lord eden gently and i should not be in too much of a hurry to call it too late it seems to me that the door is still open for a reasonable compromise i understand that the deed of gift considered as a legal instrument is still the subject of some legal discussion and may well be subject to revision i happened to be talking of it yesterday with the law officers of the crown and i am sure that the least hint that you yourself i take it that you mean said miss rhodes with great deliberation that you'll tell your lawyers it'll pay them to pick a hole in the deal 
that is what we call the bluff western humour said lord eden smiling but i only mean that we do a great deal in this country by reconsideration and revision we make mistakes and unmake them we have a phrase for it in our history books we call it the flexibility of an unwritten constitution we have a phrase for it too said the american reflectively we call it graft really cried norman towers a little bristly man with sudden shrillness i did not know you were so scrupulous in your own methods most unscrupulous said mr lowell virtuously enoch oates rose slowly like an enormous leviathan raising to the surface of the sea his large sallow face had never changed expression but he had the air of one drifting dreamily away well said he i dare say it's true i've done some graft in my time and a good many deals that uh, weren't what you might call modelled on the sermon on the mount but if i smashed people it was because they were all out to smash me and if some of em were poor they were the sort that were ready to shoot or knife or blow me to bits and i tell you in my country the whole lot of you would be liable to be lynched or tarred and feathered to-morrow if you talked about lawyers taking away people's land when once they'd got it maybe the english climate's different as you say but i'm going to see it through as for you mr rosenbaum my name is low said the philanthropist i cannot see why any one would object to using my name not on your life said mr oakes affably seems to me a pretty appropriate name he drifted heavily from the room and the four other men were left staring at a riddle he's going on with it or rather they're going on with it groaned horace hunter and what the devil is to be done now it really looks as if he were right in calling it too late said lord norman towers bitterly i can't think of anything to be done i can said the prime minister they all looked at him but none of them could read the undecipherable subtleties in his old and wrinkled face under his youthful yellow hair the resources of civilization are not exhausted he said grimly that's what the older governments used to say when they started shooting people well i could understand you gentlemen feeling inclined to shoot people now i suppose it seems to you that all your power in the state which you wield with such public spirit of course all sir horace's health reforms the norman tower's new estate and so on are all broken to bits to rotten little bits of rusticity what's to become of a governing class if it doesn't hold all the land eh well i'll tell you i know the next move and the time has come to take it but what is it demanded sir horace the time has come said the prime minister to nationalize the land sir horace hunter rose from his chair opened his mouth shut it and sat down again all with what he himself might have called a reflex action but that is socialism cried lord norman towers 
his eyes standing out of his head. "'Too socialism, don't you think?' mused the Prime Minister. "'Better call it true socialism. Just the sort of thing to be remembered at elections. Theirs is socialism, and ours is true socialism.' "'Do you really mean, my lord?' cried Hunter in a heat of sincerity stronger than the snobbery of a lifetime. "'That you are going to support the Bolshies?' "'No,' said Eden, with the smile of a sphinx. "'I mean the Bolshies are going to support me. Idiots!' After a silence, he added in a more wistful tone, "'Of course, as a matter of sentiment, it is a little sad. All our fine old English castles and manors and homes of the gentry, they will become public property, like post offices, I suppose.' when I think of the happy hours I have myself passed at Norman Towers. He smiled across at the nobleman of that name and went on. And Sir Horace has now, I believe, the joy of living in Warbridge Castle. Fine old place. Dear me, yes. And I think Mr. Lowe has a castle, though the name escapes me. Both with cattle, said Mr. Lowe rather sulkily. But I say cried Sir Horace, rising. What becomes of don't nationalize, but rationalize? I suppose, replied Eden lightly, it will have to be don't rationalize, but nationalize. It comes to the same thing. Besides, we can easily get a new motto of some sort. For instance, we, after all, are the patriotic party, the national party. What about let the nationalists nationalize? "'Well, all I can say is,' began Norman Towers explosively. "'Compensation! There will be compensation, of course,' said the Prime Minister soothingly. "'A great deal can be done with compensation. "'If you'll all turn up here this day week, say at four o'clock, "'I think I can lay all the plans before you.' "'When they did turn up next week and were shown again into the Prime Minister's sunny garden,' they found that the plans were, indeed, laid out before them. For the table that stood on the sunny lawn was covered with large and small maps and a mass of official documents. Mr. Eustace Pym, one of the Prime Minister's numerous private secretaries, was hovering over them, and the Prime Minister himself was sitting at the head of the table, starting one of them with an intelligent frown. "'I thought you'd like to hear the terms of the arrangements,' said he. "'I'm afraid we must all make sacrifices in the cause of progress.' "'Oh, progress be!' cried Norman Towers, losing patience. "'I want to know if you really mean that my estate—' "'It comes under the department of Castle and Abbey Estates in Section 4,' said Lord Eden, referring to the paper before him. By the provisions of the new bill, the public control in such cases will be vested in the Lord Lieutenant of the County. In the particular case of your castle, let me see. Oh, why, yes, of course, you are the Lord Lieutenant of that county. Little Lord Norman Towers was staring, with his stiff hair all standing on end. But a new look was dawning in his shrewd, though small-featured, face. The case of Warbridge Castle is different, said the Prime Minister. It happens, unfortunately, to stand in a district desolated by all the recent troubles about swine fever, touching which 
the health controller here he bowed to sir horace hunter has shown such admirable activity it has been necessary to place the whole of this district in the hands of the health controller that he may study any traces of swine fever that may be found in the castle the cathedral the vicarage and so on so much for that case which stands somewhat apart and the others are mostly normal rosenbaum castle i should say rosewood castle being of a later date comes under section five and the appointment of a permanent castle custodian is left to the discretion of the government in this case the government has decided to appoint mr rosewood low to the post in recognition of his local services to social science and economics in all of these cases of course due compensation will be paid to the present owners of the estates and ample salaries and expenses of entertainment paid to the new officials that the places may be kept in a manner worthy of their historical and national character he paused as if for cheers and sir horace was vaguely irritated into saying but look here my castle damn it all said the prime minister with his first flash of impatience and sincerity can't you see you'll get twice as much as before first you'll be compensated for losing your castle and then it'll be paid for keeping it my lord said lord norman towers humbly i apologize for anything i may have said or suggested i ought to have known i stood in the presence of a great english statesman oh it's easy enough said lord eden frankly look how easily we remained in the saddle in spite of democratic elections how we managed to dominate the commons as well as the lords it'll be the same with what they call socialism we shall still be there only we shall be called bureaucrats instead of aristocrats i see it all now cried hunter and by heaven it'll be the end of all this confounded demagoguery of three acres and a cow i think so said the prime minister with a smile and began to fold up the large maps as he was folding up the last and largest he suddenly stopped and said hello a letter was lying in the middle of the table a letter in a sealed envelope and one in which he evidently did not recognize as any part of his paper paraphernalia where did this letter come from he asked rather sharply did you put it here eustace no said mr pym sternly i never saw it before it didn't come with your letters this morning it didn't come by post at all said lord eden and none of the servants brought it in how the devil did it get out here in the garden he ripped it open with his finger and remained for some time staring in mystification at its contents welkin castle september fourth nineteen dear lord eden as i understand you are making public provision for the future disposal of our historic national castles such as warbridge castle i should much appreciate any information about your intentions touching welkin castle my own estate as it would enable me to make my own arrangements yours very truly welkin of welkin who is welkin asked the puzzled politician he writes as if he knew me but i can't recall him at the moment and where is welkin castle we must look at the maps again but though they looked at the maps for hours 
and searched Burke, Debrett, Who's Who, the Atlas, and every other work of reference, they could come upon no trace of that firm but polite country gentleman. Lord Eden was a little worried, because he knew that curiously important people could exist in a corner of this country and suddenly emerge from their corner to make trouble. He knew it was very important that his own governing class should stand in with him in this great public change and private understanding, and that no rich and eccentric should be left out and offended. But although he was worried to that extent, it is probable that his worry would soon have faded from his mind if it had not been for something that happened some days later, going out into the same garden to the same table, with the more agreeable purpose of taking tea there, he was amazed to find another letter, though this was lying not on the table, but on the turf just beside it. It was unstamped like the other, and addressed in the same handwriting, but its tone was more stern. Welcome Castle, October 6th, 19. My Lord, as you seem to have decided to continue your sweeping scheme of confiscation, as in the case of Warbridge Castle, without the slightest reference to the historic and even heroic claims and traditions of Welking Castle, I can only inform you that I shall defend the fortress of my fathers to the death. Moreover, I have decided to make a protest of a more public kind, and when you next hear from me, it will be in the form of a general appeal to the justice of the English people. Yours truly, Welkin of Welkin. The historic and even heroic traditions of Welkin Castle kept a dozen of the Prime Minister's private secretaries busy for a week, looking up encyclopedias and chronicles and books of history. But the Prime Minister himself was more worried about another problem. How did these mysterious letters get into the house, or rather into the garden? None of them came by post, and none of the servants knew anything whatever about them. Moreover, the Prime Minister, in an unobtrusive way, was being very carefully guarded. Prime Ministers always are, but he had been especially protected ever since the vegetarians a few years before had gone about killing everybody who believed in killing animals. There were always plain-clothed policemen at every entrance of his house and garden, and from their testimony it would appear certain that the letter could not have got into the garden. But for the trifling fact that it was lying there on the garden table, Lord Eden cogitated in a grim fashion for some time. Then he said, as he rose from his chair, "'Think I will have a talk to our American friend, Mr. Oates.' Whether from a sense of humor or a sense of justice, Lord Eden summoned Enoch Oates before the same special jury of three, or summoned them before him, as the case may be. For it was even more difficult than before to read the exact secret of Eden's sympathies or intentions. He talked about a variety of indifferent subjects leading up to that of the letters, which he treated very lightly. Then he said, quite suddenly, do you know anything about those letters, by the way? The American presented his poker face to the company for some time without reply. Then he said, And what makes you think I know anything about them? Because, said Horace Hunter, breaking in with uncontrollable warmth, 
we know your hand and glove with all these lunatics in the league of the long bow who are kicking up all the shindy well said oakes calmly i'll never deny i like some of their ways i like live wires myself and after all they're about the liveliest thing in this old country and i'll tell you more i like people who take trouble and believe me they do take trouble you say they're all nuts but i reckon there really is method in their madness they take trouble to keep those crazy vows of theirs you spoke about the fellows who carried off the astronomer in an airplane well i know bellew blair the man who worked with pierce on that stunt and believe me he's not a man to be sniffed at he's one of the first experts in aeronautics in the country and if he's gone over to them it means there's something in their notion of for a scientific intellect to take hold of it was blair that worked that pig stunt for hillary pierce made a great gas bag shaped like a sow and gave all the little pigs parachutes well there you are cried hunter of all of the lunacy i remember commander blair in the war said the prime minister quietly bellows blair they called him he did excellent expert work some new scheme with dirigible balloons but i was only going to ask mr oates whether he happens to know where welkin castle is must be somewhere near here suggested norman towers as the letters seem to have come by hand well i don't know said enoch oates doubtfully i know a man living in ely who had one of those letters delivered by hand and i know another near land's end who thought the letter must have come from somebody living near as you say they all seem to come by hand by what hand asked the prime minister with a queer grim expression mr oates said lord norman towers firmly where is wilkin castle why it's everywhere in a manner of speaking said mr oates reflectively it's anywhere anyhow gee he broke off suddenly why as a matter of fact it's here ah said the prime minister quietly i thought we should see something if we watched here long enough you don't think i kept you hanging about here only to ask mr oates questions that i knew the answer to what do you mean thought we would see what where the unstamped letters came from replied lord eden luminous and enormous there heaved up above the garden trees something that looked at first like a coloured cloud it was flushed with light such as lies on clouds opposite the sunset a light at once warm and wan and it shone like an opaque flame but as it came closer it grew more and more incredible it took on solid proportions and perspective as if a cloud could brush and crush the dark treetops it was something never seen before in the sky it was a cubist cloud men gazing at such a sunset cloudland often imagine they see castles and cities of an almost uncanny completeness but there would be a possible point of completeness at which they would cry aloud or perhaps shriek aloud as at a sign from heaven and that completeness had come the big illuminous object that sailed above the garden was outlined in battlements and turrets like a fairy castle but with an architecture exactitude impossible in any cloudland 
with the very look of it a phrase and a proverb leapt into the mind there my lord cried oates suddenly lifting his nasal and drawling voice and pointing there's that dream you told me about there's your castle in the air as the shadow of the flying thing travelled over the sunlit lawn they looked up and saw for the first time that the lower part of the edifice hung downwards like the car of a great balloon they remembered the aeronautical tricks of commander blair and captain pierce and the model of the monstrous pig as it passed over the table a white speck detached itself and dropped from the car it was a letter the next moment the white speck was followed by a shower that was like a snowstorm countless letters leaflets and scraps of paper were littered all over the lawn the guests seemed to stand staring wildly in a wilderness of waste paper but the keen and experienced eyes of lord eden recognized the material which in political elections is somewhat satirically called literature it took the twelve private secretaries some time to pick them all up and make the lawn neat and tidy again on examination they proved to be mainly of two kinds one a sort of electioneering pamphlet of the league of the longbow and the other a somewhat airy fantasy about private property in air the most important of the documents which lord eden studied more attentively though with a grim smile began with the sentence in large letters an englishman's house is no longer his castle on the soil of england if it is to be his castle it must be a castle in the air there seemed to be something unfamiliar and even fanciful in the idea we reply that it is not half so fantastic to own your own houses in the clouds as not to own your own houses on the earth then followed a passage of somewhat less solid political value in which the acute reader might trace the influence of the poetical mr pierce rather than the scientific mr blair it began they have stolen the earth we will divide the sky but the writer followed this with a somewhat unconvincing claim to have trained rooks and swallows to hover in rows in the air to represent the hedges of the blue meadow of the new realm and he was so obliging as to accompany the explanation with diagrams of space showing these exact ornithological boundaries in dotted lines there were other equally scientific documents dealing with the treatment of clouds the driving of birds to graze on insects and so on the whole of this section concluded with the great social and economic slogan three acres and a crow but when lord eden read on his attention appeared graver than this particular sort of social reconstruction would seem to warrant the writer of the pamphlet resumed do not be surprised if there seems to be something topsy-turvy in the above program that topsy-turvydom marks the whole of our politics it may seem strange that the air which has always been public should become private when the land which has always been private has become public we answer that this is exactly how things really stand today in the matter of all publicity and privacy 
private things are indeed being made public, but public things are being kept private. Thus we all had the pleasure of seeing in the papers a picture of Sir Horace Hunter OBE smiling in an ingratiating manner at his favorite cockatoo. We know this detail of his existence, which might seem a merely domestic one, but the fact that he is shortly to be paid thirty thousand pounds of public money for continuing to live in his own house is concealed with the utmost delicacy. Similarly, we have seen whole pages of an illustrated paper filled with glimpses of Lord Normantower's enjoying his honeymoon, which the papers in question are careful to describe as his romance. Whatever it may be, an antiquated and fastidious taste might possibly be disposed to regard it as his own affair. But the fact that the taxpayer's money, which is the taxpayer's affair, is to be given him in enormous quantities, first for going out of his castle, and then for coming back into it, this little domestic detail is thought too trivial for the taxpayer to be told of it. Or again, we are frequently informed that the hobby of Mr. Rosenbaum Lowe is improving the breed of Pekingese, and God knows they need it, but it would seem the sort of hobby that anybody might have without telling everybody else about it. On the other hand, the fact that Mr. Rosenbaum Lowe is being paid twice over for the same house, and keeping the house as well, is concealed from the public along with the equally interesting fact that he is allowed to do these things chiefly because he lends money to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister smiled still more grimly and glanced in a light yet lingering fashion at some of the accompanying leaflets. They seemed to be in the form of electioneering leaflets, though not apparently connected with any particular election. Vote for Crane. He said he would eat his hat, and did it. Lord Normantower said that he would explain how people came to swallow his coronet, but he hasn't done it yet. Vote for Pierce. He said pigs would fly, and they did. Rosenbaum Lowe said a service of international aerial express trains would fly, and they didn't. It was your money he made to fly. Vote for the League of the Longbow. They are the only men who don't tell lies. The Prime Minister stood gazing after the vanishing cloud castle as it faded into the clouds, with a curious expression in his eyes. Whether it were better or worse for his soul, there was something in him that understood much that the muddled materialist around him could never understand. "'Quite poetic, isn't it?' he said dryly. "'Wasn't it Victor Hugo or some French poet?' who said something about politics in the clouds. The people say, Bah, the poet is in the clouds. So is the thunderbolt. Thunderbolts, said Norman Tower contemptuously. What can these fowls do but go about flinging fireworks? Quite so, replied Eden. But I'm afraid by this time they are flinging fireworks into a powder magazine. He continued to gaze into the sky with screwed-up eyes, though the object had become invisible. If his eyes could really have followed the thing after which he gazed, he would have been surprised, if his unfathomable skepticism was still capable of surprise. 
it passed over woods and meadows like a sunset cloud toward the sunset or a little to the northwest of it like the fairy castle that was west of the moon it left behind the green orchards and the red towers of hereford and passed into the bare places whose towers are mightier than any made by man where they buttress the mighty wall of wales far away in this wilderness of columned cliffs and clefts it found a cleft or hollow along the floor of which ran a dark line that might have been a black river running through a rocky valley but it was in fact a crack opening below into another abyss the strange flying ship followed the course of the winding fissure till it came to a place where the crack opened into a chasm round like a cauldron and accidental as the knot in some colossal tree-trunk through which it sank entering the twilight of the tremendous cavern beneath the abyss below was lit here and there with artificial lights like fallen stars of the underworld and bridged with wooden platforms and galleries on which were wooden huts and huge packing-cases and many things somewhat suggestive of a munition dump on the rocky walls were spread out various balloon coverings some of them of even more grotesque outline than the castle some were in the shapes of animals and on that primeval background looked like the last fossils or perhaps the first outlines of vast prehistoric creatures perhaps there was something suggestive in the fancy that in that underworld a new world was being created the man who alighted from the flying castle recognized almost as one recognizes a domestic pet the outline of a highly primitive pig stretching like a large archaic drawing across the wall for the young man was called hilary pierce and it had previous dealings with the flying pig though for that day he had been put in charge of the flying castle on the platform on which he alighted stood a table covered with papers with almost more papers than lord eden's table but these papers were covered almost entirely with figures and numbers and mathematical symbols two men were bending over the table discussing and occasionally disputing in the taller of the two the scientific world might have recognized professor green whom it was seeking everywhere like the missing link to incarcerate him in the interests of science in the shorter and sturdier figure a very few people might have recognized Bellew Blair, the organizing brain of the English Revolution. "'I haven't come to stay,' explained Pierce hastily. "'I'm going on in a minute.' "'Why shouldn't you stay?' asked Blair, in the act of lighting a pipe. "'I don't want your little talk interrupted. Still less, far, far less, do I want it interrupted. I mean, while I'm here. A little of your scientific conversation goes a long way with me. I know what you're like when you're really chatty.' Professor Green says in his satirical way, 9920.05, to which he reply with quiet humor, 75.007. This will be too good an opening for a witty fellow like the professor, who will instantly retort, 982.09. Not in the best taste, perhaps, but a great temptation in the heat of debate. Commander Blair, said the professor, is very kind to let me share his calculations lucky for me said blair i'd have done ten times more with a mathematician like you well said pierce casually as you are so much immersed in mathematics i'll leave you as a matter of fact i had a message from professor green 
about Miss Dale at the house where he was lodging, but we mustn't interrupt scientific studies for a little thing like that. Green's head came off in the papers with great abruptness. Message? he cried eagerly. What message? Is it really for me? 8282.003, replied Pierce coldly. Don't be offended, said Blair. Give the professor's message and then go, if you like. It's only that she came over to see my wife to find out where you had gone, said Pierce. I told her so far as is possible to tell anybody. That's all, he added, but rather with the air of one saying, it ought to be enough. Apparently it was for Green, who was once more looking down upon the precious papers, crumpled one in his clenched hand unconsciously like a man suddenly controlling his feelings. Well, I'm off, said Pierce cheerfully. Got to go visit the other dumps. Stop a minute, said Blair, as the other turned away. Haven't you any sort of public news as well as private news? How are things going in the political world? Express in mathematical formula, replied Pierce over his shoulder. The political news is MP squared plus LSD over U equals L. L let loose. L upon earth, my boy. And he climbed again into his castle of the air. Oliver Green stood staring at the crumpled paper, and suddenly began to straighten it out. "'Mr. Blair,' he said, "'I'm terribly ashamed of myself. When I see you living here like a hermit in the mountains and scrawling your calculations, so to speak, on the rocks of the wilderness, devoted to your great abstract idea, vowed to a great cause, it makes me feel very small to have entangled you and your friends in my small affairs.' Of course, the affairs isn't a small one to me, but it must seem very small to you. I don't know very precisely, answered Blair, what was the nature of the affair, but it is emphatically your affair. For the rest, I surely were delighted to have you, apart from your valuable services as a calculating machine. Blue Blair, the last and, in the worldly sense, by far the ablest of the recruits of the Longbow, was a man in early middle age, squarely built, but neat in figure and light on his feet, clad in a suit of leather. He mostly moved about so quickly that his figure made more impression than his face. But when he sat down smoking, in one of his rare moments of leisure, as now, it could be remarked that his face was rather calm than vivacious, a short square face, with a short resolute nose, but reflective eyes much lighter than his close black hair. It's quite Homeric, he added, the two armies fighting for the body of an astronomer. You would be a, a sort of symbol anyhow, since they started that insanity of calling you insane. Nobody has any business to bother you about the personal side of the matter. Green seemed to be ruminating, and the last phrase awoke him to a decision. He began to talk, quite straightforwardly, though with a certain schoolboy awkwardness, he proceeded to tell his friend the whole of his uncouth love story, the overturning of his spiritual world to the tune the old cow died of, or rather danced to, and I've let you in for hiding me like a murderer, he concluded, for the sake of something that must seem to you not even like a cow jumping over the moon, but more like a calf falling over the milk stool. Perhaps people vowed to a great work like this ought to leave all that sort of thing behind them. Well, I don't see anything to be ashamed of, said Blair, and in this case I don't agree with what you said about leaving those things behind. Of some sorts of work it's true, but not this. 
Shall I tell you a secret? If you don't mind. The cow never does jump over the moon, said Blair gravely. It's one of the sports of the bulls of the herd. I'm afraid I don't know what you mean, said the professor. I mean that women can't be kept out of this war, because it's a land war, answered Blair. If it were really a war in the air, you could have done it all by yourself. But in all wars of peasants defending their farms and homes, women have been very much on the spot, as they used to pour hot water out of the windows during the Irish evictions. Look here, I'll tell you a story. It's relevant because it has a moral. After all, it's my turn, so to speak. You've told me the true story of the cow that jumped over the moon. It's time I told you the true story of the castle in the air. He smoked silently for a moment, and then said, You may have wondered how a very prosaic, practical Scots engineer like myself ever came to make a thing like that pantomime palace over there, as childish as a child's coloured balloon. Well, the answer is the same, because in certain circumstances a man may be different from himself. At a certain period of the old war preparations, I was doing some work for the government in a secluded part of the west coast of Ireland. There were very few people to many talk to, but one of them was the daughter of a bankrupt squire named Malone, and I talked to her a good deal. I was about as mechanical a mechanic as you could dig out anywhere, grimy, grumpy, tinkering about with dirty machinery. She was really like the princess you read about in the Celtic poems, with a red crown made of curling elf-locks like little flames, and a pale elephant face that seemed somehow thin and luminous like glass, and she could make you listen to silence like a song. It wasn't a pose with her, it was a poem. There are people like that, but very few of them like her. I tried to keep my end up by telling her about the wonders of science and the great new architecture of the air, and then Sheila used to say, And what is the good of them to me, when you have built them? I can see a castle built itself without hands out of gigantic rocks of clear jewels in the sky every night. And she would point to where crimson or violet clouds hung in the green afterglow over the great Atlantic. You would probably say I was mad if you didn't happen to have been mad yourself. But I was wild with the ideas that there was something that she admired and that she thought science couldn't do. I was as morbid as a boy. I half thought she despised me, and I wanted half to prove her wrong and half to do whatever she thought right. I resolved my science should beat the clouds at their own game, and I labored till I actually made a sort of rainbow castle that would ride in the air. I think at the back of my mind there was some sort of crazy idea of carrying her aloft into the clouds she lived among, as if she were literally an angel and ought to dwell on wings. It never quite came to that, as you will hear. But as my experiments progressed, my romance progressed too. You won't need any telling about that. I only want to tell you the end of the story because of the more. We made arrangements to get married, and I had to leave a good many of the arrangements to her while I completed my great work. Then at last it was ready, and I came to seek her like a pagan god descending in a cloud to carry a nymph up to Olympus. 
and I found she had already taken a very solid little brick villa on the edge of a town, having gotten it remarkably cheap, and furnished it with most modern conveniences. And then I talked to her about castles in the air, and she laughed, and said her castle had come down to the ground. That is the moral. A woman, especially an Irish woman, is always uncommonly practical when it comes to getting married. That is what I mean by saying that it is never the cow who jumps over the moon, it is the cow who stands firmly planted in the middle of the three acres, and who always counts in any struggle of the land. That is why there must be women in this story, especially like those in your story and Pierce's women who come from the land. When the world needs a crusade for communal ideals, it is best waged by men without ties, like the Franciscans. But when it comes to a fight for private property, you can't keep women out of that. You can't have the family farm without the family. You must have concrete Christian marriage again. You can't have solid small property with all this vagabond polygamy, a harem that isn't even a home. Green nodded and rose slowly to his feet with his hands in his pockets. When it comes to a fight, he said, when I look at these enormous underground preparations, it is not difficult to infer that you think it will come to a fight. I think it has come to a fight, answered Blair. Lord Eden has decided that, and the others may not understand exactly what they are doing, but he does. And Blair knocked out his pipe and stood up to resume his work in that mountain laboratory at about the same time at which Lord Eden awoke from his smiling meditations and, lighting a cigarette, went languidly indoors. He did not attempt to explain what was in his mind to the men around him. He was the only man there who understood that the England about him was not the England that had surrounded his youth and supported his leisure and luxury. The things were breaking up, first slowly and then more and more swiftly, and that the things detaching themselves were both good and evil. And one of them was this bald, broad, and menacing new fact, a peasantry. The class of small farmers already existed and might yet be found fighting for its farms like the same class all over the world. It was no longer certain that the sweeping social adjustments settled in that garden could be applied to the whole English land. But the story of how far his doubts were justified, and how far his whole project fared, is a part of the story of the ultimate ultimatum of the League of the Longbow after which the exhausted and broken-spirited reader may find rest at last. End of chapter 7